I mean, somebody like that, like you said, at a young age, I mean, especially who her daddy is and who their family is in this city for her to take on a role of, uh, and, and, and follow a path like that through all that, all that, all the discipline it takes to get those degrees in, in that, in that particular field and go out and actually, uh, pursue it and help people, man, when she could have just very easily done Exa- the, yeah. uh, done the opposite. Exactly. Man. That says a lot exactly. about it. And I always, I always think, you know, talking with some of the, the, the men and women that are going through going to school where I'm going to school and working on their things. A lot of them have a, an emotional link to their studies, just like this young lady did. She obviously was diagnosed at the age of 12 with obsessive compulsive disorders and it, and it plagued her life. And instead of bowing down to it and letting it taken her life. Literally. I think she, she's talked about almost committing suicide because of this. She, she overcome adverse, she overcame adversity and that never quit attitude and, uh, pushed forward and, and not only, got out to tell the story of her life, but educated herself so she could help those in need. Absolutely. I mean, she's the perfect definition of of what we're doing here on this show. I mean, something that would take you to the point of committing suicide, staring in the face and then coming back and, and learning from, because that's what it is really. I mean, it's, this is the first, I think she was, she's the first one on here with the, we're talking about the OCD and in depth like this. Yeah. So that's that's good, man. Cause I know a lot of people have problems with that, man. And to see somebody who's actually had it on the worst side, and uh, met it, you know, head on. Hers, and hers was so bad that the multiple doctors were like, "Hey, look, we can't treat you." Yeah. Talk about perseverance with her and her family, especially you know with her family saying, "Hey, look, you know, this answer is not good for us. We we just do not believe that you cannot help." You know what? That's actually the greatest answer you can give somebody who has that fire burning inside them. Because if I look, if no one else is going to help me, I'm going to help myself. And on top, because of that. She got all these degrees and she came out and now she can answer the questions that those doctors that she so vehemently sought like out. Can, when somebody comes there, it's like, well, the doctors told me that I was incurable oh. or they can't help or treat me. And she could say that's out of the list. You're looking hard enough. We're not looking hard enough. We can help you find it. And another great part about this is that not only she's not, uh, if you look back the team never quit storylines here, a lot of them are physical. You got, you know, you got Goggins coming in, the, the ultimate about tough Ederman, Andre Agus, Goggins. Uh. And uh, Andre, a lot of the athletes and the athletic prowess and the, the, the challenge and the adversity they, they 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 ran into becoming champions in their own right. This young lady had a had a mental issue, and her challenges in her life were stemmed from the mind and and, and yeah, becoming that manifested into physical. Right? I mean, it did. It absolutely herself- did. But now, instead instead of imagine trying to overcome adversity with having a mental it's something uh, distraction, inside. yeah, right, the beasts on the inside. Have you, seen, have you ever seen Aviator with Leonardo DiCaprio? Where he plays Howard Hughes. Sure. Talk about a guy who had severe issues, but made something of himself. You want to talk about a never a, a, a never cool story? I think Howard Hughes kind of fits the mold that you that we're looking for on this show. Have you ever seen that original video of him of Howard Hughes after he wrecked that plane in that um was it a strawberry patch or whatever field that was? On the, on the field now, huh? Where the real Howard Hughes standing there? It is. No, I, so I was watching it. It was either after Aviator after the credits it shows that or watching on something, man. But he's standing there, and I mean, it is so bad. He has the the scratch where he grabs his pants and pulls it up and like let's start over i mean it's so bad this is after a plane crash that he's sitting there making that guy refilm that thing over and i need to pull that up somewhere man but it's i mean he apparently had it to where it was debilitating yeah so this guy i did my i did some homework on this dude he holds 
land speed records for airplane flight, not only around the globe back in his day, but he started out with just a, across the continental United States. Then Texas circumnavigated boy, right? Texas boy, yeah, Texas Tex boy from old Texas. Then he circumnavigated the globe. He was a millionaire at eighteen, a Hollywood filmmaker, and at the time produced the most expensive movie ever filmed, Hell's Angels. Hell's Angels I think right? they did that. Yeah, they did that in the movie. Um, and I don't think many people know this, but he owned a majority of Las Vegas back in the day. Yeah. Man, he did covert work with the government. The guy's all the time. Yeah, man. I the, yeah, I did off with the CIA. He recovered the uh, what's the name of that, that submarine? I don't know. I was gonna say yeah. after doing all after watching that movie last night and then kind of doing some homework, he had all that with, and then had had severe obsessive compulsive disorders. Was a complete germaphobe. You know, it says he was a complete germaphobe, and he would wash his hands thousands and thousands and thousands of times. Um, but he he. Also, they said, see, this day and age, shower. he would, yeah, right. So is that the rub? That's the rub, right? When you, when you have it to where it becomes a paranoia or it, or it controls your, what you do when, on a daily basis. It, when it becomes so bad that you can't function and it decreases the quality of life, then it becomes an obsessive disorder. Uh, yeah. When Ohio, he got uh, real bad. He had locked himself in a hotel room. That was a true story. And when the, when the hotel staff tried to ask him to leave because he had been there for so long and, and then the smell and the, the pungent odors were, were you know coming out of the room, he bought the hotel. <laughs> I couldn't imagine trying to function in life when having, you know, especially back then you couldn't really die. They weren't, there wasn't really a diag- diagnosis for it and there definitely wasn't a treatment. Not that there's, there absolutely is not a cure for OCD. So, so anyone, is, that, everyone, is it something that, is OCD something that is you're, you're born with and it just escalates or elevates over age and time and experience or digress? How's so that, we're actually going to talk to the subject matter expert on that here in just a bit. But from what I understand is it is it's not necessarily genetic. The only time they've seen a genetic predisposition for this dis- disorder is in identical twins, not fraternal twins, but identical. If one had it, then the other one would get it probably explain some of the issues that you and I got going on since we do a lot of the same things. But again, the young lady that we're going to have on the show today um, has multiple degrees in this arena and would more than likely be able to shed some light on her, not only her journey and adventure, her journey through life dealing with uh, this disorder, but what she went into to decrease her symptomatic issues. Because again, there's no cure for it. Number one, we don't know where it's coming from. Number two, you can't cure it. We have, there's, there's treatments in place to decrease the symptomatic issues and increase the quality of life. But she deals with this on a day-to-day basis and it just has coping mechanisms again in place so she can function properly in life. And she's done very well for herself. I mean, this young lady yeah. had all these issues before she, before she got a doctor. I know how hard getting a doctor it is. It's I mean, impossible in its own right. Imagine having something that up cognitively that's pulling you down every single day. She has to over not only does she have to overcome her OCD, she has to study no. and and write and get in front of people and all the things that that drug her down, like her, her germaphobe and her inability to so, to to socialize in a, in, a, in a a large crowd like agoraphobia. You know, she had to overcome that so she could get out and tell her story and say, "Hey, look, you know, even though this is, I have this." It doesn't define me. Uh, that, that's another thing too is, is to say. I mean, she 
sought out and a lot of people out there seek out the doctors the the the, the best in the field of something that, that that you think that you're suffering from and they give you the the answer that you're not ready for or that you don't want man that just goes to show you man a lot of time you boil it down depend on yourself teach yourself and if you're the one that's suffering from it then you know better than anybody else actually what's going on inside of you man if you educate yourself and then have just the drive to push past it like she does man like any of the guests that we have on here man it's just it's just another amazing count of how somebody no matter if it's physical or mental man if you reach deep inside and figure out how you work and how the problem's working you man it's just unbelievable so that's another great i'll be interested to see at what age when that hook when she grabbed a hold of that hook, whatever it was, is like, okay, I can beat this. Yeah, there's always that, oh, I got it, man. I got it figured out. Especially ha- having her accomplish all these things at such a young age. That just goes to show you, it doesn't matter, man, yeah, woman, right? nine oh. to 99. Right. It, it can happen at any moment. You're never quit. Attitude can present itself at any age, and all you have to do is follow, which obviously she's done. She's obviously going to have a, a great Heck career yeah. at saving saving lives. Absolutely, if you look at this, breaking down the lowest common denominator, what she's doing is going to save lives. And I've, I've read some of her research, and uh, I mean, absolutely doing great things, especially all, everything from her foundation that she's created to who she's working with, who she's partnering with. And the, and, the, and the things that she's and that she's pushing forward on. I mean, a multiple award winner already in her early twenties. That's that's you know that's that's rare, especially someone who is that driven at that age with with those issues. Welcome to the show. Yeah, let's bring her on. Okay, welcome back to the show. We have with us right now Miss Elizabeth McInvale, a young and brilliant doctor in the world of social work, focusing in on obsessive compulsive disorders. Elizabeth, how are you? How are you? Great. How are you? Thanks for doing this. Of course. Happy to. All right, Liz. So this is uh, I'm actually uh, standing in for Mr. Rutherford today. So you got you. Also, you get Marcus and I both, but you also get my first time on on air and out into the public eye. So let's work through this. I can't wait. I like to say it like this, Liz. It's one of these just right here. First of all, thank you again for coming on the show. Like my brother said, man, we we're excited about this. And plus, it's it, it's one of those ones where I can take a deep breath because we're family friends too. So no, no matter what rabbit's hole we wind up going down, we can we can get back out of it and get back on course. But the way this is designed up and. I know you've done a lot of these. It's yeah. it's one of those where you and I are and, and Morgan just hanging out. And when we start this thing off with the mad minute, I mean it's one of those things to get the brains going. All right. And it's right. <laughs> it's got it's a fun time. So I, we're gonna kick this thing off. I'm gonna send you the first question. All right, here it goes. I need to know what your favorite superhero is. Favorite superhero? Oh goodness. Um it would have to be Batman. Good one. Nice. Another right. We got our first Batman the other day. That's, that's nice. Batman, Batman. I have a five-year-old nephew, and so he'd be upset if I said something else. Okay. All right. All right. My turn. So, if you could be either a pro athlete, a rock star, or an actor, which one would you be? Pro athlete for sure. I I don't really like the limelight, so I feel like with that you can focus on your talent and just do your work. What sport? Um, what sport? Maybe. Let's see. In today's, so I was an Olympic gymnast, like hopeful didn't go to the olympics but so it would have been gymnastics a long time ago but now it would probably be tennis or something like that morgan and i played tennis he wasn't gonna say that out loud but uh, <laughs> we we did <laughs> i liked it i like tennis what i got a goofy look all over your face <laughs> all right first car 
first car. I can't wait BMW. to hear this one. <laughs> of course it was. What she said, I missed it. What she say? BMW. <laughs> oh, I'll call it's Mac like up later. Mac. Like <laughs> I love your old man. I mean, he fires me up so much, man. Just, just even when you're in a bad, it just happened to see, stumble him on the TV, man. He just, hey, right, what no. grade were you in when he came to the? He came to the. We were in high school. He came to high school and did it. Did a speech. Gave us a speech, right? I was, uh, that's the first time we met. I, I, she yeah, knows the story. Yeah, he came to give a speech uh, at our high school, and uh, yeah, I had to hand him the microphone and was talking to him. And I was just, uh, his eyes bigger. Man, it was mattress Mac, dude. And then I ran into him afterwards. Obviously, being grown up and being a frog, man. And I told him that story, and he's like, yeah, I don't remember that. I'm like, I know, but I do. <laughs> All right. All right. Here's a good one. My turn. All right. Should Texas be its own country? Yes. And a girl. See, that's how you know you're, that's how you know you're born and raised in Texas. All right. Favorite movie character you'd like to play out in real life? Oh, my gosh. Um, oh, I have no idea on that one. Thank, thank, thank. Favorite movie character. I, I don't know. I need some like what? What are y'all's? And then I see if, give- if you would have said if you would have said Lonesome Dove is my favorite movie and I cannot live without it. I, I can't choose between Robert Duvall and Tommy Lee Jones, so I'm going to say both. Then Marcus and I would have adopted you as a sister, right then. Boom. Yeah. If you'd have said Riddick, I would probably have to marry you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I I seriously don't watch many movies, so I feel like that's a tough one for me. All right. Well, there's plenty of books. Oh, made you, movie made in, you could have been character. like, hey, you know what? Lone Survivor. I don't want to be Marcus Luttrell. I want to be Marcus. Absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> Absolutely not. You should have said, I want to be Marcus Luttrell's twin brother, Morgan. <laughs> I don't ever. Somebody throw me a ball once, for once in a while. Oh. That's the mad minute. We got the juices flowing. All right. All right. We're ready to go. Yeah, like I told you, that was that's just some kind of some softball, fun softballs we throw at you to get your mind going. I mean, because obviously the premise behind the show is to bring someone like you on who's accomplished so much and connect you with the uh everyday human walking out there and, and struggling in life man everybody brings their own unique perspective and and you'd be surprised how many people go through the same struggles and but have this kind of identity or this feeling that they're in it alone right and uh we're we're really interested in hearing your perspectives um so let's just get cut straight to the chase right wizard morgan you ready so yep, liz sure. please by all means tell us your greatest never quit story or stories Gosh, um, you know, I think for me, it's probably been since I was 12 or 13. So when I first got diagnosed with a chronic mental illness, I think everyone kind of told us to quit, to give up. And they told my family the same thing. They told my parents for sure that there wasn't treatment available for me, that they should kind of accept the fact that I would probably live in a group home for the rest of my life and wouldn't really be a productive part of society. And I mean, obviously, I have amazing role models who weren't going to let that happen. They don't believe in the word quit. They weren't, you know, they always believed everyone has a chance and you just sometimes have to work a little bit harder for your chance, but we all have it. And so I think for me, it's kind of been that entire journey of the past, you know, 18 years. But I think specifically, um, there was a point where I really didn't want to be here anymore. I really um, was on that kind of verge of why should I live? Why should I kind of do this? It's not didn't feel worth it. It felt like things were never going to get better. And I kind of made that conscious choice that, you know what, life might not be great every day. It's not for anybody, but I'm not going to quit. I'm not going to give up. And so just making that choice consciously, I think for me, continues to be my greatest never quit story. 
the feeling you get when you said that you want that's an it's an actual weight right it's a feeling you have that you and a lot of people don't understand that if they haven't gone through it. And even it, it affects people from from every end of the spectrum. I mean, it doesn't matter if they're I mean, it, it's so powerful that it can make you completely give up on everything. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. You know, I, the, when, whatever you're dealing with and you're right, it's not I live with a I've lived with obsessive compulsive disorder since I was 12. And for some people, they live with a mental illness. For some people, it's a life circumstance, right? Something horrible happens. They, they experience something they never would have wanted to experience, whatever it is. Um, and I think like Marcus, like you described, it, it is, it just, it overtakes you to the point where you can't see anything else. You have that tunnel vision and all you see is it feels like there's no path out. It feels like this is your life consumed by this horrible thing, whatever it might be, that living nightmare. And, you know, it, it is, it is a feeling that you really can't explain, you know, but it, it's one that it just doesn't feel like there's a way to get out. I think people have kind of described it as you fall in that hole and it's full of mud and you're trying your best to climb out, but, but you can't because you keep slipping and, and you just, you kind of get stuck in that feeling. But I also think, you know, there's things that helped me get out, but at the end of the day, it all starts with your mentality, right? You have to make that conscious choice that, you know what? Life isn't what I expected. Life isn't as beautiful and great every day, but I'm going to accept it for what it is and I'm going to make it beautiful and great. And I think it's hard to do that when it feels like there's nothing good, but there's always something good. You just have to search a little bit harder for it. Would you mind, would you mind sharing with us some of the symptomatic issues that you were, that were, that were plaguing you when you were a kid? Yeah, absolutely. So it started when I was really young. I did little stuff like I would um, ask my parents a lot of reassurance about like the weather and do they think people are going to be safe. And I had trouble like reading books all the way through. I could never use a bookmark. So, bookmark, so I had to start at page one every time. And there was little yeah. things, but it wasn't anything that was super concerning as a parent. It was just you thought your kid had quirks. And by the time I turned probably about right around 12, and um, it just got drastically worse. So I started having these thoughts that um, if I don't wash my hands, I'll get a disease. I might give it to a family member. I started having these feelings that and these fears of something bad was going to happen to someone I love. What if they what if they got in a car accident? What if they died? What if I didn't say a prayer ride and they don't get to go to heaven because of me and having all of these kind of bizarre thoughts. And it turned into me engaging in all these rituals to feel better, because if I did the ritual, whether it was a hand wash or a prayer or asking my parents a reassurance question, I automatically felt better. And so I got stuck in the cycle of by the time I was 13 or 14, I was taking six to eight hour showers and I couldn't get out of the shower. I couldn't do everyday functioning because it was just filled with all of these rituals in an attempt to keep people safe. I thought. Was there a, is there a kick? I mean, you said at 12 years old, was he just, I guess started to grow, go, go through changing into a woman. Exactly. And I, I mean, I understand that, that kind of mentality too, from not as much where I have to wash my hands after every single thing I touch, but like in my, in my closet squared away from white shirts all the way to the darkens, the money in my wallet is squared away from dollar to all the way is uh, $5 as high as it goes. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Sorry, it's a pitiful joke. But anyways, my point is, is that the kick that brought you into that, can, could you in your mind tell yourself, all right, I'm going to invent something to take care of the prayer, the hand washing. I'll say a prayer while I'm hand washing and that will just eliminate all the other phobias or whatever it is that I have or that that is it just that it's so strong in your head that you have to address every single one of them that make any sense I don't know if that that makes absolute sense so I think 
what you're describing as squared away, I certainly have that too. Like in my fridge, for example, I like things organized a certain way and I like, you know, I just, I, I function better that way. That's <laughs> it's the, the lettuce drawer for lettuce. Okay. Yeah. You put lettuce <laughs> in the lettuce drawer. It says it right there. You know, it's, it is. And so that's more of kind of what we call OCPD, where it's obsessive compulsive personality disorder. So people, like you mentioned, they like, you know, their closet organized a certain way or <clears throat> surgeons talk about this all the time, that they like all their instruments in a certain order. And that's but no, people talk about the fact that like being squared away, it helps them function. It's something that although it can be annoying and it can take time, it's something that helps them just it's what they, they kind of enjoy it. They enjoy being organized. Where with OCD, and I, I do a lot of that in different areas of my life, but with the OCD that I'm talking about, it was much more of these really horrible rooted fears, you know? So it wasn't just like, I like something organized or I want to do it. It was, if I don't do it, there's going to be this horrible, bad outcome. And so it was really hard for me, although conceptually I can totally understand why, why not make like one mega ritual. I couldn't do that because every time I had these thoughts, I had to act on them somehow to get them to go away. And they were these really horrible, intrusive thoughts like someone's going to die or someone you love, something bad's going to happen to them. These things I wasn't willing to live with or risk. So a lot of, I don't think a lot fear- of people can, they, they can't understand that in relative terms because right. there's actually nothing that's really going to happen to you. So like somebody who can't swim has a fear of drowning. Correct. I mean, it is the same emotional level for you, not at, not washing your hands as if you throw somebody in a pool that can't Wait, swim. So, yeah. Okay. I, I get that. So you're having the, um, the same emotional ride that someone is having while they're drowned. I mean, it can get that intense even though you're not Absolutely. near the water. Yeah. I mean, we're talking like complete panic, anxiety. You feel like you're going to throw up your throat's closing up. I mean, it's, there's a fear at the base of it. Everybody's is different, right? Some people is the fear that they're going to get a disease. Some people it's the fear that they're not going to go to heaven or that something bad's going to happen. But there's for OCD, there needs to be that fear at the bottom of it. Where oh, like yeah, for yeah, squared yeah. away, like you were talking about, you know, kind of having that personality. There's not typically a fear. That's just more of, this is who I am and how I function. I think it's the fact that, so the fear, so first of all, with OCD, I know what I'm doing makes no sense. My entire life, even when I was 12, I could like tell my mom and my parents, I would tell them over and over, I know I don't need to do this, but I feel like I have to, or something bad might happen. And so there's this truly irrational part where maybe with some of the things you're talking about, it's there's, there's a benefit to act, you know, to these behaviors. It truly helps you be more effective and, and have better outcomes with OCD. There's no benefit to it. Right. There's nothing good that comes yeah, yeah, yeah. and it in turn makes people be able to not function appropriately. I, 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 yeah, absolutely. There's no, there's no, there's no reasonable explanation and no benefit to washing your hand a hundred times in, 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 in an hour. Exactly. Yeah. And the thoughts, the problem is, is that if someone just doesn't do it, they, they may be able to just not wash their hands, but they're so preoccupied then with these thoughts and fears that they can't function on other stuff. And so and l- let me guess. So if they, if someone does try to push forward and brave one of the things, like not wash their hands and they do get sick, that probably just compounds the that reinforces the behavior, the problem, right? Like, Oh, I didn't wash my hands. I got sick. Now I need, I definitely need to do this. Right. Right. So it's Absolutely. A, and and the rituals reinforce the behavior because what happens is when they wash their hands and they and don't get happen. sick, yeah. they're telling themselves, oh, it's working, right? This is what's keeping me safe when really it's not. What, uh, what were your early manifestations for you besides just the, the washing of the hands? Yeah, so it was oh, a, lot, um, a lot of religious stuff. So I had this, I'm, we're a big, really big Christian family, very strong faith. And, um, and my OCD really attacked 
it attacks the things that are most important to you. So the things, the people you love, um, the things and qualities and morals that mean the most to you. And so I struggled a lot with this fear of like the number 666 and not being able to do anything that was an iteration of six or had a multiple of six. I couldn't buy things at the store that had like a six in the price tag or then a three or a two. Because Good luck on that one, right? (laughs) Exactly. And so, you know, and then feeling like red and black, they're the colors of the devil. And so I can't wear anything that I couldn't wear anything that was red or black or, you know, again, an iteration of red or black, which is most colors. And so it just, it slowly manifested in all of these different arenas. And before you knew it, I was completely debilitated. I wouldn't say I really wasn't sleeping, but when I wasn't asleep, my entire day was occupied by either an intrusive thought or a ritual. I'm sure even, even when you're dreaming, even when you're dreaming at night, cause something as substantial as that throughout the day will follow you into your dream state. Correct. Yeah. And, and we talk about that. So some, a lot of people with OCD, myself included, if you're having a really bad day and you fall asleep, often you will wake up to almost a nightmare. That's really an OCD thought, right? Like while you're dreaming, you're thinking about some intrusive thought or a hand wash you didn't do or something that happened. You wake up and you kind of start ritualizing right away. And I, oh, because yeah, it so manifested right, so, in you in a young age, you probably just didn't know what was going on. You kept your mouth shut and you just, it just, you just roll with exactly. it, right? Yeah. And, and y'all know my dad and I mean, he's an amazing person, but I think that I was really scared. Like what, what are they going to think? What are my mom and dad going to say? Right. They have good influence in the city. I wasn't sure, you know, I knew what I was doing made no sense, but it felt like I had to. And so it makes it even worse because you know, you don't need to do it, but you feel like you have to do it. So you literally feel like you're going insane. And, um, you know, I, so I, I, like hit it as long as I could. My hands would be like chapped and bleeding. And I told my parents I had an allergic reaction to the soap. So they threw out all the soap in our businesses and in our house. <laughs> if I know your dad, oh, I bet he yeah. replaced everything in the house. Oh, for sure. And, and, you know, and so you hide it because you don't know what they're going to think or say. And eventually it got to a point where I had lost a lot of weight. I wasn't sleeping and you could just tell something was going on. And my mom um, was really who I first opened up to. All right. So, so, so here we are at age 12 and this, and from 12 on, it starts to grow. The issues start to compound exponentially and then, and up to a debilitating state. So where, where did it go from there? How did we, how did, how did you, and what did you and the family, once you opened up to your mom, what did you guys do to, to, to work to get this under control? Because from my understanding, we don't have cures for OCD. We just have the proverbial band-aids. Right. Um, for sure. Um, but the way, you know, so it was a long road. Um, so we grew up here in Houston, you know, biggest medical center in the world. My parents are very well connected. And so they started making phone calls and trying to figure out what do we do? Where do we go from here? And we legitimately went from therapist to therapist who told my parents and myself, which I still can't understand why you would tell a 12 year old this, that there's no treatment available for her. We've never seen a case this severe. And you really like should just accept the fact that her life is going to be pretty miserable and that she won't ever be able to function. People do that. Right. Yeah. Let's write that down. We'll pay him a visit. Yeah, And it happens all the time. And my dad always tells the story of like, thank God we're buyer, we're sellers, not buyers. Right. So he was like, I wasn't buying that. And, um, they just, you know, so, but I will say, so, um, I was probably 13, 14 at this point. I went to a therapist who finally diagnosed me and they gave me a proper diagnosis. Now, 
For OCD, it takes on average nine to 12 years for people to get properly diagnosed and then nine to 12 years before they get proper treatment. So we're talking about like 20 years of somebody's life of suffering before they even get the help that they need. And so when I got my diagnosis, I'll never forget the therapist looking at me and saying, well, now that you know you have OCD, does it feel better? A lot of people talk about feeling relief when they get a diagnosis and feeling like, okay, you know, I'm not alone. And I was legitimately so confused. I remember looking at her and I said, so help me understand this. You are telling me there's a diagnosis. You're asking me how it makes me feel. Yet you're telling me there's no help available for me. And I should accept my life basically as misery. Yeah. Real quick, real quick, real quick. Um, great point. So just for the listeners out there that, that maybe know someone or maybe think that they have an OCD issue. Can you, can you kind of go into what finally, I mean, after all these doctors that you visited and all these different clinicians and institutes that you visited, they were all no, 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 no. And finally they found, you found the one that diagnosed it. What, what did that entail? So, so, so other people that don't have, they don't have to travel down the, the misery road like you did and could possibly just take a shortcut straight to that particular, that's that particular protocol. So first of all, find a nonprofit for whatever you're struggling with that deals with that because they will help direct you to good clinicians because that makes the world of a difference. But for me, I was struggling with pretty common OCD symptoms like excessive hand washing and praying. And I mean, these things that from the outside are pretty diagnosable. And so I think, you know, myself finally being willing to talk to a therapist about my struggles, but my parents also, especially my mom, really talking about what our home routine looked like. And then the therapist will ask a lot of questions. They'll do a quick assessment. It's like a 10 question assessment called the Yale Brown obsessive compulsive scale. And off of that, you can pretty quickly know if someone has OCD or not. And how did that come? I mean, who finally said, Hey, Let's take a look at this. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I think let's that- throw him a shout out, him or her a shout out. What's the doctor's name? Is like, all right, I'll stop. Has anybody done this yet? I mean, that that out of the box innovative thing, that outlier, that doctor that's an outlier that said, "Whoa, who was that?" You know, it was a therapist um, on the north side of town where we grew up, but I think she had dealt with OCD quite a bit. And I think that for her, she could pretty easily see, oh, what is this? Let me do an assessment to get a diagnosis. But the problem is, is that even with that diagnosis, there still wasn't treatment or help that she knew of at the time. So um, the diagnosis was certainly the first step. But I think that I just think the biggest thing, especially for kids, is that you have to give them hope. You know, and even if a therapist, as a therapist, I'm a therapist now, even if I don't know what to do and I know I'm going to need to lean on other people and get referrals and get resources for a client, like you have to give a kid, but an adult, anybody hope. You know, we see this all the time. I did my postdoc for a year at the VA and right. A lot of veterans know that they're struggling with something, but if you don't give them hope and let them know that there's actual stuff they can do to get better, they're not going to want like believe you or feel any better when they leave your office. True statement. Absolutely. Truth. No matter Truth. you know how small or minute the chance is, man, there's still the chance. And the the, the power of will in a human being is different in, in everyone. So I mean, you literally come across somebody who has this, uh, this, this kind of the same issue, man. But the their the willpower to overcome it is what's going to separate them. Doctors right. can't pick. Right. They they don't. They can't. You can't diagnose it. You can't see it. There's not a test for that. You know. I'm just like I. Ain't, I'm not dying. I'm getting. I'm not going to suffer from this anymore. I'm glad you helped me find out what's going on. Give me the path to fix it, and I'll walk it every single day. What else are you going to do? I mean, you say it takes 12 years. Well, I mean, if you're going to live for 12 years, you, you got time then, right? I mean, yeah, it's, it's one of those things. 
Right. One of the biggest things that we're finding in the veteran community is number one, first and foremost, like you, when you got your diagnosis, like, hey, I just want to answer on what's going on or a probability. And then from there, let's move on and let's 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 branch out and find these little satellite institutes and stuff that maybe could help me out. Like obviously you did when you went out to Kansas. Can can so now that we have the diagnosis and we know that we have OCD. What's what what's mommy and daddy doing now? What's next? Yeah, so they're they're kind of scrambling. They're trying to figure out what's happening. They're talking to every person they've met. Um, they're getting resources. My mom at the time, like this was a few, probably two years in, read a Sports Illustrated article about somebody struggling with OCD who was a basketball player. And so she got in touch with those people. She had me meet him, and that was great. It was really good to meet somebody else with a similar diagnosis who could kind of just be a mentor and give me advice and feedback. But we still didn't know what to do and how to go from there. And it was so ridiculous that there are residential treatment programs for OCD, but they weren't publicized back then. And, and it's so strange that it took us, we took this roundabout way of hearing about it. So what happened is my dad reads the Chronicle every day and he opened up the, um, maybe not anymore, but he opened up the Chronicle at gallery and, um, he was reading the Houston Chronicle and there was an excerpt in there about how the Menninger Clinic might come to Houston one day. And he continued to read and it talked about how they have an OCD program at the center. And so he immediately picked up the phone and within a week I was being, I did an assessment with a therapist from there and um, pretty quickly after they were taking me to Menninger. Um, it was, it was an interesting ride. So at this time, I was pretty suicidal. Um, my parents, somebody was with me 24-7. Luckily, I grew up in a household with parents who could take me to work with them, could watch me all the time, and could... How old, how old, were, we at, how old were we at this age? At 15. I had just turned 15. 15 and, and suicidal. So I yeah. just want to put that out to all of the, because a lot of people think, it's like, all right, hey, you know, this possibly, this can't happen to a young child. This can't happen to a kid. Absolutely important. And... Um, and so thankfully, my parents, their number one priority was keeping me safe, getting me help. And so, you know, as a parent, it's much different than when someone's an adult because you have that responsibility and that burden. And it is so hard to kind of, you're, you know, my dad's mentality, he'll tell you this. He had a mom who dealt with depression and his mentality growing up was get over it, right? Tough it up or let's just fix it. And so when I got sick, that's what he thought at first, too. Well, no problem, Linda, we'll just fix it. And my mom was like, but we can't seem to fix it. And so... Anyway, the day they decided to take me to Menninger was an interesting day because at this point, I didn't believe in treatment. I didn't even think there was help available. So I was super resistant of any sort of care. I didn't want to go to see somebody. I didn't like they're not going to help me. This is a waste of time. And my parents knew that. And so they decided to tell me the morning of and um, they actually had Mike Thornton, who, uh, you know, Marcus is Navy SEAL. <laughs> oh, I know him too. Uh, so they knew I was probably going to run away and I did, I tried to run away, which like, where was I going to go anyway? And he literally had to like grab me, put me in the car and we had to charter flight to get there. Cause I was so resistant to going. And it was such, it was just, it was, it was a really, in my opinion, horrible day that ended up being the best day of my life. And I, I didn't know that at the time, but you know, I thought that all those things, those people had said was true. I thought that, my parents were going to leave me at this place forever. I thought that I was a burden to them. And I thought that, you know, I had been told for so long that I would never get better. There wasn't treatment and that I would probably just live in an institution the rest of my life. And so I really thought this was what my parents were doing that day. And what changed, what changed that? I mean, obviously you, I, I 
I've, I've actually, I've never experienced it, but I've seen it where you actually have to go all in on these treatments for it to, to assist properly. So if someone at 15 was having the problems that you were, I'm sure you could have just sat in the corners like, I absolutely didn't want to do. At what point when you showed up there, just like, okay, well, I think this will work. I want to add on to that too. I mean, you, you're talking about a situation, you're going into a hospital to work on your mind. A lot of times when people get hurt in the physical injuries, you wind up in the hospital, you know, the procedure. I'm going to have a surgeon, be laying in that bed. They're going to be coming in and changing the bandage or anything. I mean, to go into to a hospital of the mind is just in itself. You have, you have to be mentally prepared to do that, right? And the fear of getting left in something like that, you know, had to be just unbelievable. I bet your dad losing his mind, man. I, I mean, I know he was, I'm sure. Yeah. So after I got hurt, my physical injury, I go down to Exos every year. I did not want to go down there. I mean, it's like pulling teeth. They literally had to order me to go down there. And same thing. Once I got down there, I've been going there for 10 years now. Every year, it's just one. you have to accept the fact that, that you have the problem and this is the place I need to go to get it. And I got to give everything else up, right? You know, I got there. I was involuntary. I was really one of their first involuntary patients. It was the first time they ever had to lock the unit because they thought that I would for sure try to leave. And, and I was, I was, I was a teenager. Like I was a 15 year old who didn't want to be somewhere. I wasn't the friendliest kid. And, um, <laughs> no, not what? <laughs> Say it. So, <laughs> so my brother was away at college. So it was my mom, my dad, um, and my sister. And by this point, by the time we get there, my parents, like my dad, especially, they see the facility, they see some of the other people and what's happening. My dad and my sister were completely on my side of like, we're not going to leave her here. She's coming home with us. Linda, <laughs> we're not doing this. Like no way. And my mom, but my mom was the one who dealt with me every day. She's the one who spent every night with me while I was crying and devastated and upset. And she was the one who saw how bad my OCD truly was. And so she finally just told my dad and sister, she was like, I know you love her and this is coming from a place of love, but she can't get better at home. We've tried everything we can and we have to give this a chance. And so uh, my mom told me when she left and she doesn't make a lot of promises, but the ones she does, she always keeps. And she said, Liz, I promise I'm not leaving you here. You're going to get to come home when you're well. And I remember, I'll never forget that statement, but I also I didn't believe any of it because I didn't think I could get well. I'd been told for so long I couldn't, and I didn't see that as being a reality. So although I knew she meant it, it didn't mean much to me, And but they left. And the thing is, is you've all heard of situations where you have to take people to rehab or you have to do these drastic measures to get people to help. People either, like you said, Morgan, you either grasp on or you don't. And there was something about my parents leaving me there that I just realized, you know what? I don't know if this is going to work, but I'm going to give it my 100% all because it's my only chance at getting back home and getting back to a life. And the thing is, is that when you're at a place where you wish you were dead every day because that seems so much better than the hell you're living on earth, why not give it your all? Like, wh like what hurt? What, what, what is it going to hurt to say, you know what? I'm all in. I'll do everything y'all tell me to do and we'll see if this works. It doesn't mean I believed them. I certainly didn't believe it would work, but I was willing to go all in because I had nothing to lose anymore. The power of persuasion. Uh, yeah. I applaud the um, clinicians and doctors at that facility to get into the mind of a 15 year old and say, Hey, just, just give us a chance. I can, that probably took a, a, a couple of weeks or a couple of days at least to say, to make that transition. Well, I mean, this same white coach telling you that there's no cure and that, that we don't have no, any idea what's going on for the longest time, then exactly. I mean, just think how powerful that is that your, your, your mother was telling you that she wasn't going to leave you and you still have doubt in your head because these other guys said that, you know, there's no cure. We're going to keep you here till you get well. When, when is that? 
Right. So right. I think it's important. I mean, just I don't have any other thing I have to do. I, there's nothing else I can be doing. There's nothing else that's important. I need to be right here in this moment. And once you accept that, then, uh, man, you can just charge forward. Is that, would, that, would, that, would that be some advice that you would give to somebody who would be an inpatient like yourself that went to like, hey, look, accept the fact that you have nothing else to do in your life but do this. Right. And then that, that would help. That lets the treatment work properly. A hundred percent. Right. It's like, I mean, sure. We all, our mind can be in a 50 different places, but here's the, here's the deal. Anxiety, fear, and worry don't live in the present. They only live in the past and the future. At Uh some point you have to stop and say, hold on. I've got to work on me. And the reality is, is that none of us want to, because if we have to stop and work on us, then we have to address what's wrong with us. We know we're going to have to face those fears. Marcus, you talked about earlier, right? The, one of the points of the training you guys have been through is being able to accept that fear almost and learn to, you, you learn to deal with it in different ways. And that's what OCD treatment's all about. It's about learning to live with uncertainty. Yeah, sure. I can't guarantee a hundred percent that you're never going to get sick, that no one's ever going to die that you're going to go to heaven. I can't guarantee those things, but it's much better to live with that uncertainty and be able to live a life than to be overcome by this fear and anxiety and, and live in misery. And so, you know, people at some point, I think it takes a couple, a lot of things to get better. You know, I think people need support of some kind. I think they need appropriate treatment and help, whatever that is for them, but you have to have motivation And I don't care what that is. There's so many people that'll say, well, I don't have anything that I'm motivated for. Yes, you do. There is something that would be important to you that you can set that as a goal. You know, you could sit there. There's parents all the time that'll say, well, I'm, I have nothing to be motivated for. You know, my OCD has ruined my relationship with my kids, with my husband. Well, that's motivation right there, right? Your motivation to get better is that I want a relationship again with my kids or with my spouse or whatever it might be. So, so that's, I mean, absolutely. Well said, well said. I mean, motivation to be with your family, your friends, and in long, long term down. It's a long, it had to be. It's a long road. You're not over it. It's, it's, it's. This is your life and how you're going to live it. Is there any time during, not only during your treatment, but follow on that's like, hey, look, times are getting tough. How am I going to make it through this? Yeah. So I spent 90 days at Menninger the first time I went in Topeka and I left a different person. You know, it doesn't mean I didn't have OCD, but I could take five to 10 minute showers. I could wear any clothes that I wanted in my closet. I could hang out with friends. I could, I could live a pretty normal life. I still had my ailments, but for the most part I was functioning. Um, but I was 15 and I didn't really listen to most of what I was told as far as you need to keep up with treatment. You need to keep working. I thought, you know, well, I'm doing good. I don't need treatment anymore. I don't need this. And so slowly these things started to creep back up. And by the time I was 17, I was in just as bad of a place I was before I went to the first time and the second time I went back to treatment so when I was 17 I relapsed and I went back to Menninger again for about another two months at that time and it was a totally different situation because this time I knew there was treatment that worked I knew myself enough to say hey mom and dad like I need help again I'm not doing well and I need that extra help and push and so when I went back to treatment it was just different I was making that choice for me the first time I could have never made that choice because I didn't know there was a choice to be made Um, and, and I worked really hard but I my motivation wasn't there as much. Uh, the first time I was super motivated because I had never been exposed to treatment. I mean, I sat down with doctors. I'll never forget that the first time at treatment when they talked to me, it was just like this 
overwhelming experience of, holy shit, they know what they're talking about, right? Like for so long, people had no idea what they were talking about. And when you're with someone who actually gets it, you stop and say like, oh, this is real. Like, oh, they might actually know their stuff. They might be able to help me. Um, And so when I relapsed and I went back to treatment, it just changed things a lot for me because it made me realize that, you know, I needed to accept this as a lifelong battle and acceptance is everything. If I try to deny my story, it will always own me. But at some point, if I, Brene Brown talks about this a lot, who I love, but if I own my story, I get to write the ending, right? And so for me, it was about saying, you know what? I have a chronic mental illness. That is my life. But I can learn to function and to manage it and still live a wonderful life versus if I let it overtake me. And I see this all the time with uh, with veterans, with individuals with mental health, all sorts of stuff, right? It's so easy sometimes to stop and say, I can't work. I can't function. I can't do this anymore because of my illness. But yes, you can. It might not be the same type of thing you envisioned you would do, but we can all live a productive um, fulfilling life, even with whatever we're struggling with. Uh, basically, what's happened is is that 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 transitional point in your life, you're you, you went from a normal human being, like a civilian, right, to being trained. Right. So you're basic. It's it's that's what we are. We're we're trained uh, to harness our fears, and that's the same thing they had to do with you. They take something that you had that was affecting you in a negative way and taught you how to harness it and and apply it to your life. So it's not a mental illness. It's it's what you are. It's you it's part of you right so it makes up who you are and once you learn how to control it and harness it you can you can push it in the direction that you want and morgan and i man we, we talk about this all the time we we trans we have transitional points in our life so there was a certain time in our life we were in the seal teams and we transitioned into you know civilian world husbands fathers and whatnot and i don't know if this i want you to this is a question actually is it a good or a bad idea so uh, like i said in the military they call it squared away all that that uh that drive and determination to have everything I, once i got out i mean it's from the time i wake up i use all that energy and focus to checking the tire pressure on my wife's car i you know I, I get the kids up and do the routine take them to school i'm gonna cut the we live out on a ranch it's always something and i don't let one thing kind of catch my attention for an extended amount of time but i don't back it up so much to where i'm just wasting my time i guess my question is is it in a similar situation like you, to harness what was affecting you negatively and push it out in that positive way is, is, is that that's a good thing, correct? That's the key to life, right? And so people say that to me all the time is they'll say, well, Liz, you never slow down. You know, I never see yeah, you I just never, kind of right, sitting. Exactly. I'm like, first of all, have you met my dad? Like, we don't <laughs> slow down in the Mackinville family. That's not our mentality. But for me, if I can be busy as long as it's productive, then for me, it's worth it. It doesn't matter what it is, but if I can channel the obsessions or the intrusive thoughts and say, okay, I'm not going to listen to those because I'm going to focus on all these things that are important. And so for me, I've poured it into advocacy and outreach and mental health work or helping my family or spending time with my niece and nephew, right? Like it doesn't matter what I'm doing, but if I'm busy and preoccupied, my thoughts are a little bit more at bay. If I sat and like had no plans and was just going to sit all day, my OCD would still come up in a lot more ways than it does currently. And so the thing I always tell people is that channel your energy in a way that's productive and helpful for you and can help you have a fulfilling life. I like, I like that. What you said about write your own book of life, man, if you let somebody else tell your story and write your, you're just a character in their, in their, in their book of life. Right. And write yours. And I, and I, I was wondering what you thought about this. So people who have OCD, does it, 
Do you see a difference in them when they take all of that energy that was debilitating to them to help others? You know, you focus right. all your, because right. that's kind of what I had to do, right? I literally don't really care about myself that much. I just love my family so much that when I wake up in the morning, if you're so busy concentrating on everybody else, then it's, you really don't have that much time to worry about what's affecting you or what your problem is. And that in, in return gives me joy. Exactly. No, I think, I think that's a hundred percent for me at least. And I think that's what happened is the second time when I went into treatment, you know, my parents have spent over half a million dollars on my treatment that most people can't do that. Right. I, I am very keenly aware of the fact that I am so grateful that I grew up in a family who could afford and help me get the treatment I needed. Most people never get it. And it bothered me. It like, I really struggle a lot with that. And so I started pouring, you know, making part of my life mission is helping other people and giving back and trying to find ways that people who otherwise wouldn't be able to get the help they need for their illness could. And there's been nothing more fulfilling in my life. And it, it hasn't mm-hmm. just been, like you said, Marcus, about the fact that it drives me because it does, but it also, it gives the suffering a purpose. You know, I think for me, I wondered a long time and my parents did of why, why does she have this? Why does she have to go through this? She didn't do anything to deserve it, but getting stuck in the why helps nobody. You have to say, this is my story. This is my reality. I need to figure out how to move forward. And for me, when I help other people, it just, it creates purpose that you, I never knew existed from something so challenging. I um, have done a podcast and a lot of work with Dr. Drew. And one of the things him and I talked about is it's the same with addiction, right? When you see individuals who've lived with addiction, the goal eventually after AA and you know, you're at a good place is to be a sponsor because when you help someone else, it gives meaning to your recovery in a way that otherwise couldn't be there. So we're safe to say today Liz owns this disorder. This disorder doesn't own Liz. Absolutely. I mean, I'm not, I'm not sitting here saying I don't have OCD. I still struggle. I still go to therapy once a week. I still work every day on it, but it doesn't control my life anymore. I, I control it. Yeah, you harnessed and, um, it. It's, Learned how to harness it. Yeah, I, I've harnessed that fear. Yeah. You're exactly right. I love what, I love that analogy because that, that's what it's all about. You know, it doesn't mean I'm going to be perfect and it doesn't mean I don't have bad days, but you figure out how to harness it in a way that works for you. Sure. I mean, I, that's just an, an amazing story. What you've what you've overcome. I was, the whole time I was sitting there thinking, I was like, you know, you got a you got somebody who is OCD, and just like we said, lines everything out. I'm, because you identify things a certain way and have to have them in a certain order, it it will play into what this person does for a living. And I mean, if you if you look at it like, all right, what are my problems, and what in life can I apply these two to where it's beneficial instead of negative? I mean, there's just multiple things you can look at instead of. The doctor's saying, you know, we don't have any treatment for this and there's no cure. I mean, there's always that positive outlook on it. And and, and what you've done is just a prime example of that. So thanks for sharing that. I, I, yeah, I, I love the fact that and I, and it's rare. And I don't know how many therapists like yourself suffered from the disease. So you have such a, a working knowledge from not only coming from the disorder side or the in the, in the victim side. Now you're on the other side of the fence looking across the table at those who have it. It's kind of where I'm going with my, my studies um, in, in my doctoral program, coming from the military side with a TBI, now on the cl- clinical side and the research side, looking back across it, it was like, hey, do, I, I see what you're saying, and I, I can, I, I'm speaking your language, which you have such an emotional link to anyone and everyone else suffering from OCD, yeah, now with your education. Your perspective, yeah, man. I, I, you know, yeah, your perspective and your emotional link, this is, I mean, this is Nobel Prize stuff. I mean, we're, we're talking... You you got it, girl. Go forward and do great things. I, I it's an honor to talk to you about this. Exactly. And, I mean, you wouldn't go get a tattoo from a dude 
dude who didn't have a tattoo, right? I mean, you, you, right. Yeah. if you walk in there, yeah, and somebody is, I'm not going to go on a marriage counselor who's not married. Yeah. Right. <laughs> well, yeah. I exactly. The, the, and I, I think the thing is, is that, and like you said, Marcus, for some people, especially when it's those OCPD tendencies, figure out how to channel it. But, but when it's OCD and it's diagnosable and it's interfering with your life, get help, right? And I think the biggest part of the story that's so important is there's not shame in getting help for your for your suffering. You know, if you have a broken leg, nobody's going to say, don't go to the doctor. So why is it different when it's our brain? And I think, you know, for me, at least going into the field and being a therapist, if anything, it's a living testament that I believe this stuff works, right? It plays out in my life every day. And so if I was willing to give it a shot, you should too. And and clients really appreciate that. Yeah, Your testimonial is so much more powerful than someone who hasn't walked a mile in those shoes. And, it, and it, absolutely awe-inspiring. Well, thank oh, you. I mean, you hear about it more and more. Is OCD becoming more prevalent or has it always been around and we're just identifying it? Yeah, so I, I mean, I look at it more like that, like autism, where I don't think it's more prevalent. I think we're just identifying it more. But, you know, so average rates are about 3% across the world, males and females equally. Like you said earlier, Marcus, for me, it onset around puberty. We see onset around like puberty, life changes, going to college, postpartum, right? So any sort of big kind of changes or um, obviously any sort of hormonal changes. But uh, actually, so with co-occurring PTSD, we see OCD rates much higher, like so closer, like five all the way to 12%. And you guys know this, but right, like when you come back and if some people are struggling with the thought, like I've had clients who, um, you know, struggling with the thought of putting a blinker on on the freeway because I think overseas when they did that, it meant there was indication that there might be um, something ahead. Well, so then you come back to the States and although you're safe and it's a different environment, that's a trigger. So some of the rituals might be checking or doing stuff. So it looks like OCD as well. I got a question. Is it more prevalent in Western society or around the world? Is there a, is there a culture that doesn't have, have it that resonates at the 3% level? Or is this just kind of... A great question. Yeah, so it affects 3% worldwide. It's the top 10 reason people fall for disability across the world. Um, so it's the same, but certain cultures don't acknowledge it. So the suffering is the same. It's definitely there, but there's a lot of cultures, particularly like in sub-Saharan Africa, yeah, so you're just Asia, talking about, yeah, different advances places. in medical, you know, got or stigma. They don't talk about mental health right, yeah. at all. I mean, you're talking about some cultures that's superstition. That's lore. That's your, that's the medicine man doesn't mess around, you know, that kind of, and they, they still believe you can literally walk back in time outside of this country. If you want to, oh, yeah. you can find places out there that, that are way back in time. So just the thought of bringing something like that up would be taboo. You know, it's just un- taboo. Yeah. It's under. Uh, I'm, I'm reading over your bio again here, Liz, and it's just, um, and I hope mine looks like this one day. So we're, we're, we're a professor at Baylor. Right. Uh, we have peace of mind foundation that you are the founder CEO of. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? I want to know where you're at today and, and what we're doing, what, what Liz is doing to, to promote this and make such a powerful movement to help those, to help the others in need. Thank you. Um, yeah, so mainly through my foundation, we do research, advocacy, and support. And our biggest thing ends up being support, right? So on a daily basis, it's phone calls and emails from people that were like my parents were, you know, 15 years ago, where they're saying, our kid is sick, or I'm sick, and I don't know where to go. And so we'll help direct people in the right in the right place so that they don't spend that 12 years looking for treatment that isn't going to work. And we get them to the right therapist earlier on. So we do a lot of that. We're local here in Houston. My dad and I do a ton of 
speeches and events talking about mental health, trying to raise awareness. And that's really our biggest thing is that, you know, it's time. Mental health is at the same place like HIV and cancer was 30 years ago, where where people are still not really talking about it. And it's still this kind of whispered, hidden thing. And it's just time that we we talk about it, we're open about it, and that we get rid of that negative stereotype. Um, mm. My biggest frustration in the world is that when there's a mass shooting or something happens, immediately it's, oh, it's probably a mental health condition. Oh, it's probably PTSD or something like that. And it's time that we really educate the public on what mental health or mental illness really looks like. And, and it's so treatable that so many people could get the help they need. They're just afraid to. Yeah. This is definitely the decade of the brain where we're, where we're learning a lot more. Oh, yeah. oh that's the next, uh, yeah, that's, that's the next big thing, man. Unlocking the mind. It's one of those things and you, you both do it too, right. In different ways, but it's about how do we take our story and make a difference in the lives of other people? What, however that is. And everybody I don't care who you are, what you're struggling with, what you've dealt with. We all have a way that our lives or our story can positively impact someone else. And there's no other feeling like it. Absolutely. I tell you what, I I mean, this has been an incredible interview. We we really need this because I I hear that OCD. Now you have kids, you really pay attention to it. I mean, but I tell you what, to wrap this up through everything that you've been through and bro, you want to add on to this and everything that you've been through. I mean, there's that. Like we talked about the aha moment or the kick or something like that. That that passed down because people are going to listen to this and and then they hold on. They listen to the story and then there's that at the end we wind this down. It's that one thing like, hey, look, you know what? After everything that I've learned, all of this, this is what I, the the best advice I can give you. Yeah, Just want to help you to let yeah. everyone know. Hey, look, you you this is not your fault. One of the biggest problems I'm running into with doing these veterans, they think it's their yeah. fault, so they don't want to say anything and be convincing. What is, them, you, what like, is hey, your look, fault? No. Is not doing anything about it. That, that oh, yeah. is your fault, right? You're, hey, everybody needs to tune up. Everybody needs to check up. Everybody has the ability to say, hey, don't be scared anymore. Don't be nervous. Don't hide this. It, it, again, we, we don't understand the mechanism that's causing this, but you not any individual not coming forward that, that thinks they possibly have OCD saying, hey, let's take a look at this. You know, parents, be aware of this for your children. You know, spouses, caregivers, teammates, colleagues hey be on the lookout i mean just because you work for somebody everybody and you think they have these little nuances that piss you off is there an underlying issue that we're not they're not picking out here and that's the key so i will say there's there's three things that are important right so the first is getting help you've got to get the right help or you're not going to get better that's just reality if your bones bones broken you don't ever put it in a cast or or get it fixed right it's probably not going to heal on its own um, and the way the things that parents people look out for is Look at so three common signs of mental illness, right? Coming out is weight loss, um, disturbances in sleep, and disturbances in everyday functioning, right? So, if we start to see our child is losing weight, if they're not sleeping well, or if you know they're things are starting to come out in a negative way, school or with friends or whatever, we need to kind of figure out what's going on. And the thing is, is just ask questions, make your kids feel comfortable to know that they're safe with you and that they can talk to you about things that are concerning them and ask a couple questions. And for OCD, particularly, you want to look for that high level of anxiety, but those fears, right? What are they afraid of? And are they doing these rituals to combat these fears? Everybody in the world has obsessions and everybody does some compulsions, right? If we have a if I have yeah. a really important meeting tomorrow and I know I just set my alarm clock, I might check it one more time just to be sure. Um, oh, or you wouldn't I'm be human. You didn't do stuff like right? that. <laughs> Come on. Exactly. 
But when is it interfering with someone's ability to function? And that's when you need to seek help. If you, it is starting to, you know, you can't use it to in an effective way. It's starting to truly negatively impact you. So first is get the right help. And then the right help means finding a therapist who is specialized in OCD. So many people will go to someone who says, oh, I treat anxiety disorders. That's not going to work. So exposure therapy alone does not work for OCD. It's a specific type of cognitive behavioral therapy called exposure with response prevention. And that's what foundations like myself and other ones, we will help make sure that the therapist truly understands because it's a specialized treatment. Um, So I always say treatment's key. That's number one. But the second is support. You've got to get a support network. Now, some people will say, well, I don't have my own. Well, find one, create one. You can go through social media. You can go online. And then the last thing is, is give back. Because once you're at a place where you're helping other people, you know, my aha moment that I I always think really is mine wasn't, wasn't getting therapy. It wasn't getting better. It was that first time I had somebody say, my story made a difference in their life. Um, My story made them seek treatment. My story stopped them from, you know, thinking that they didn't want to be alive. That is the sort of thing that drives me every day to keep working hard because if I'm not managing my illness, I can't help other people. Yeah, it's kind of like the finishing part of the training is to give back. I mean, you think I went through this and I got this and I got better. I'm going to go out and do my, no, to actually finish it and lock it into places when you turn around and help the person coming up underneath you. And, um, the thing about that I kind of get frustrated with and Morgan is too, is, is how the, the meds, right? The pills that they, they, a lot of people try and chunk meds at, at, at the problem without actually getting in and working it out, man. And I got to tell you, it, it, it's unbelievable. I mean, there's, you're talking about sitting in front of the doctor and and you're like, all right, so let me get this straight. The, the pill I take that gives, makes my gums bleed. If I mix that one with the one makes me feel like I'm passing a Volkswagen every time I go to the bathroom, if I combine those, that's going to give me the hiccups. That's it. All right, let's do that. You know what I mean? It's just kind of like the best thing that happens is when you clear your head, you get all that crap out of your mind. This, especially with the veterans, right? I mean, once, if you, if you're injured physically, And you start throwing all that, that junk on top of it, man, you're in a cloud. You, and you just do what you're told. Doc's yeah. sitting in front of you telling you you have this problem. And I learned this from my brother. I mean, the, the reason I move around like I do now is because of the guy sitting, you know, a, across from us. But, you know, he, he, would, he would tell me, he's like, man, I go to these doctors. They keep telling me that I'm messed up. I'm kind of starting to think that. So I just quit going. You know, I ain't messed up. And I, I was like, well, I ain't either. And I mean, we, my brother and I have been to hell and back, you know. And it was just kind of, we have each other, always. And that's what, that's brother's love, but man, going through stuff alone is not the way to do that. Stay next to that pillar that makes you strong. A hundred percent. And I think that's what happens is I think people might have a person and they'll tell them everything, but not this one thing, right? Because what are they going to think of me? What are they going to say? And you're right. It's, it's shocking. Actually, a lot of people will say to me, well, when do I tell somebody, when do I not? And I always, not always, but majority of the time, it's, you know, gosh, they were much more receptive than I thought. They probably and already I think, knew. They already probably already knew. You know, like, Right. It's rare that they're going <laughs> to say, oh, my gosh, I've never seen that. Yeah. You know, it, it often, for most people, they say, oh, that makes sense. How can I help? And I think we all think the worst in people. And the reality is, is that there's some still some pretty amazing people out there. And if it's somebody that you're close to, and if they don't accept you for it, then you don't really want to be their friend anyway. Yeah, true said right there. Well, that was one of the most amazing conversations I've had on brain health and especially obsessive compulsive disorders. Yeah. Thank, thanks. For, thank you so much for coming on and, and, and doing that. And, and just kind of, is it okay if we have you back? I mean, we're going to, absolutely. Yeah. please do. I'm 
so grateful for you guys having us, but more having me, but more importantly for what you do and shedding the light on so many things people need to hear about. It's, it's really great. Oh, yeah. well, you have, you have an amazing never quit story. And uh, as I was telling brother earlier, I mean, a lot of people have these, these physical attributes where they do, you know, we have Goggins and we have tough Peterman, but rarely do we have somebody who's, who, who's experienced and exposed to the things that you were and, and said, all right, enough's enough. Not only did you conquer what was your, your disabilities that you had, now you're on the other side saving lives in that way. And that, that, that never quit mentality that you have, you're passing it off to, to those in need. And I'd give you a hug if I was sitting in front of you. <laughs> well, thank you. And, and that's what life's all about, right? It's just about us taking challenges and turning it into something positive, however you can. And I think that at the end of the day, you know, to go back to the thing I was talking about at the beginning is that I know for a lot of people, it feels like there's not a way out and there just always is, you know, it might be a lot of work to figure that out, but find those goals, find that motivation, find the one thing you want to live for because there's something and work really hard to get back to that. Well, that's great. Well, Liz, right. thank you. Thank you for your time, hon. Thank Love you so much. God bless. Tell them we love them. Okay, we love y'all too. I'll tell them. See y'all. I'm out. Bye-bye. Bye. Amazing. Mm. Some amazing insight right? on what that disorder entails and some of the directions that she took to decrease her symptomatic issues and some of the places that she visited. And, and then overall, I would say, bro, you can back me up on this one if you want, just overall giving an enlightened conversation to say, hey, look, you know, you're not alone. There's some certain things you need to look out for, some things that, that there's mm-hmm. telltale signs for anyone of any age, no matter if you're 12, she was 12, it can, it can manifest itself at, um, you know, postpartum she said so an, an, an adult having a child that's um, yeah I, I think you nailed it right there i mean she didn't get rid of it so it just became a part of her and i, I think that's the the best thing when we were talking about the the fear and, and harnessing that that fear i mean it, look even to this day you and i talk about this any situation we get in i mean no matter what it is i still have those same responses i have that we had when we were boys when we got picked on you know, the butterflies in my stomach no matter what it is the only difference is is i know how to Direct the yeah, you know, I know how to deal with it. I mean, the, over the years, we've just gained that experience to deal with that particular fear. And, and instead of getting caught in that, that circle that, that people get caught in, man, we, we learned how to push through it. And what I tell you what, man, once you learn how to do that, it just, it is. It well, is luckily, self- luckily for us, we had each other. Right. No, she remember she was alone. Yeah, going to by yourself. If I had a problem like this, you, you're sitting right next to me our entire life, saying, "Hey, look, uh, I'm recognizing this. I have identical oh, twins, yeah, so you sure. might have had it as well." So our OCDs, you know, the one we have, it's all comparable. But uh, one of the biggest talk, some of the big talking well, points. That's she a great had, point because that 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 thing we have when our uh, throat seizes up. I, I had no yeah. idea you had had that. It never happened while we were together, but it's been happening. Then one day you, know, you were telling me, about, I was like, man, I got that too, dude. I didn't, you know, so it is one of them deals. It's a, it was a problem, but we never talk about it. And I didn't even talk about it to you until you, you said you were suffering from it. So I, I get that. If you're, if you're sitting at your house, man, in, in a family that, that loves you or if they don't love you, man, just to, if you're, don't be alone, all right? If you, if you think it's a problem that's directly affecting you, man, then say something and don't be embarrassed to do it because, you know, we all, like, I still go to physical therapy to get in shape every year. That's my routine, man. Just like she does, I do the same thing, man. And uh, it's just a part of your life. So once you make those 
those particular mechanisms that are that are causing you all these problems, once you are able to face that, overcome it, and and make it a a part of your life to push forward, man, it's just it's it becomes a tool instead of a crutch. Thank you. I couldn't think of a word that rhymed with tool. I got you back. I got you back. So I want to thank everybody again for coming out and uh, listening to me host my first show with my brother. It's been an honor. We miss old Rutherford. I hope him. Uh, hope he's having a great vacation. And yeah, man, you did a great job stepping up to do that. The, the the questions that rolled off just like I knew it would, man. I I tell everybody that when it when it comes to stuff like this, you've always been the uh, the better one of the two at it. So it, man, I, just an honor to have uh, to do the first podcast with my brother. It's it's been a long time coming, man. And uh, looking at you over there, listen, watching you ask questions to uh, to Liz and and you two go back and forth on the on the the mental part of this was uh, awe inspiring. I got to tell you, so. I like to wrap everything up by you know thanking my brother for coming on. Love you, man, and uh, thanks to the wife, the boss lady, for the family and everything that she's given me. To the, the Almighty upstairs for giving me my friends, and uh, <clears throat> you know what, to everybody out there, because I got to tell you, man, bro, you coming on here last year? We got we started this thing and we got voted up in the top of our class uh, for podcast, man, and we just can't thank you guys enough for coming back and listening to. Uh, to all these wonderful people that we bring on here and just for, for bringing us back and, and listening to, uh, to all these stories. So thanks to everybody out there. I'm out. I want to thank, thank uh, my brother for letting me come on here for the first time and exposing me to the, to the airwaves and the <laughs> podcast community. Yeah. I definitely like to throw a shout out to my lovely bride who's downstairs. We're supposed to have our second child any day now. Matter of fact, he's three days past due, so we're in uh, we're in launch position. Holding on, holding on, <laughs> holding on tight. God's <laughs> God the bless jumper in the door. He, yeah. didn't, he didn't like to exit like like his uncle, yeah. man. <laughs> I don't mind. I just want to as long God as you can. Him. Yeah, and God bless our troops who are fighting for us overseas and keeping us safe. Thank you for your service. God bless America, and we will wrap this up. Mojo out. I'm out.